Hello, everybody. This is Paul. You're about to listen to a podcast episode I did with Ron Lee, and the audio is a bit off, not up to our usual standards. I apologize for that. We had two choices here. One is to try to redo the entire episode, or two, to just let it go as is. We decided the second one because the content is just so darn good. So apologies in advance for the audio. I hope you enjoy the episode. It's it's a really good one. Take care. If you look beyond the shortages that are there today, the thing that will become really important over the next 10 years is getting to uh, the, the discussion on zero carbon will move from a tailpipe discussion to a whole life uh, vehicle discussion. And that again will bring about changes in the, in the supply structure. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development as businesses aim for long-term success. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sofion CTO. If you're looking for additional information around new product development or corporate innovation, sign up for Sofian's newsletter where we share news and industry best practices monthly. The fastest way to do this is to go to sofian.com that's S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com and click the sign up and stay informed box. Welcome everybody. Glad you could join us again for another episode of Innovation Talks. Today we have with us Ron Lee. Ron has uh, really spent his career in automotive. He worked for Jaguar Land Rover for 17 years as global director of powertrain engineering and five years as chief engineer and program chief for engine engineering at Jaguar. So he's certainly an expert on powertrain and automotive in general. And now he advises companies, uh, including Sofion, by the way, he's a consultant to us, but he advises companies on strategy, key decisions, technical structures and methods to get products into production and operate at scale robustly. Ron, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here, Paul. Uh, how are you today and wh where are you joining us from? I'm fine. Uh, I'm based in the Midlands, uh, just by Stratford-on-Avon. We all know where that place is, at least at least the Americans do. We all learned about it in uh, in, in grade school growing up. <laughs> and and how's, uh, how's the weather? Are you in summer yet? Spring? Yes, yeah, we're in summer. We're having a bit of a heat wave at the moment, uh, which I guess we expect to sort of break in the next few days. Uh, we normally only get a few days of, of sunshine before the thunderstorms start. <laughs> you know, I used to travel to the to the UK all the time. And uh, I used to always have a taxi service pick me up, and I, I got to know the, 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 the person driving the taxi pretty well, and we used to chat about a lot of things. And he used to tell me that a lot of people from, from, from the UK go to Disney Disneyland, Disney World for, for holidays, and he used to love it because he would say they would go to the, the, the events outside, the rains would come in the afternoon, as they often do, and all the Americans would, would go back to the hotel, but the, the Brits would stay because the rains would disappear and they'd have the whole place to themselves. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly something we're more used to dealing with. So Absolutely. Nobody's traveling anywhere at the moment. Well, yeah, let's hope that changes soon, yeah? Yeah. 
Well, Ron, uh, again, thanks for joining us. I'd like to kick it off to ask you, what, what does innovation in automotive look like maybe now and, and how is it changing? Well, I think, you know, when, when you look at the auto industry, it's, it's an incredibly competitive business. Lots of global manufacturers are, are out there trying to outcompete each other at a huge feature level all of the time. But it's also a business that's heavily controlled by legislation, you know, government policies and things like that. So you see manufacturers trying to constantly innovate in terms of new products that are coming through and new features, whilst also trying to compete uh, to deal with, you know, change in legislation. And if I think back sort of 20 years ago, it was all about performance, refinement, feature content of the vehicles. But actually, if you look at the auto industry today, it's faced with some huge challenges around getting to zero carbon. And, and that's really could across a whole swathe of that activity. So people are completely reinventing the sorts of cars that uh, we'll have for the future. That's brought a whole set of other manufacturers into the industry as well. So it's a very uh, competitive industry in that respect. Of course, the other thing that's happening is things like connected vehicles. That's opened up a whole panacea of feature content that wasn't available 10, 12 years ago. When you think about that, and I think about the role of the product manager, a product owner who's responsible, let's say, for a a vehicle or a product line. How has their job been changing as a result of this? Well, there's, there's a lot more work now has to go on to pre-planning innovation that can be introduced into the vehicles. You know, big companies have always used uh, a sort of a road mapping process where they develop technology outside of the vehicle and then look for the point at which it's introduced. As the competition has got harder and harder, that cycle is speeding up all the time. So you've a real tension these days between the vehicle line product managers, the guys who have to get a car into production uh, and attract new customers, and the functional guys who are trying to develop those new features to get them ready. And what that has done is it's forced people into a lot of innovation around the process by which things get developed. So things like simulation, uh, being able to uh, use more advanced uh, test methodologies, digitizing the processes, all of those things have increased the sort of the demands on the engineering uh, teams that go into these sorts of things so they can try and bring down the product cycles that they're working on. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned developing technology. You know, I, I remember there was many, many years that the automotive uh, companies developed their own technology. They invented, invented many capabilities. Is it still uh, somewhat inbound or are they working more in an ecosystem uh, with other companies to develop technology. What does that look like now from an automotive standpoint? It's in transition, I think. 
if you look at where we were five years ago, the tier one suppliers were doing a lot of the technology development. And the whilst there was clearly expertise within the OEMs themselves, a lot of the work was farmed out to the tier ones. With the advent of electrification, that's brought a lot of that back into focus and started to bring stuff back in-house. Part of the reason for that is that the, um, the OEMs themselves were probably more advanced than many of the suppliers in the development work they were doing. But also, as new manufacturers have moved into the industry that are not people who been traditional, and Tesla's a great example of this, they've shown the importance of things like owning your own software stack. And so companies have, have started to reintegrate quite a lot of that work in order to have better control on the product. Eventually that will kind of go full circle. As they get more control, they'll then be able to outsource stuff with better control. But in the first place, a lot of the work is being brought in-house. Now, clearly it's different between the large manufacturers, you know, Volkswagen, General Motors, Toyota, that they, they've got the capacity to do that. Clearly, a lot of the smaller specialists don't have that capability. So they have to continue to try and improve their internal processes and controls while still maintaining the use of tier one suppliers. Ron, for those of uh, who are listening who may not be familiar with OEM, tier one, tier two, could you describe that? So an OEM is, a, is generally a, a car manufacturer, original equipment manufacturer. A tier one would be somebody that could supply major subsystems to the vehicle. So that might be a transmission, could be an axle, wiring harnesses, things where there's a, a large amount of integration, both from smaller suppliers and integration into the vehicle. A tier two would generally be a supplier to a tier one. So somebody supplying, for example, uh, connectors for a wiring harness is probably a tier two into a tier one wiring harness manufacturer is then supplying into the OEM. And of course, you can get the situation where different people will be in different positions in that hierarchy for different parts. So that, for example, a, a tier one might also supply components to another tier one, in which case he becomes a tier two. Well, that's a that's a very connected ecosystem, isn't it? Yeah, I had uh, worked with a classical tier one years ago. I would say maybe about ten years ago, and their problem at the time was the OEM that they were serving, major, major, major OEM, had and they were making things like braking systems and navigation systems and whatnot, and they had their own direction they wanted to go, especially for the navigation system. Yet the OEM was telling them, kind of mandating their destiny in a way, saying, well, you have to do this and you have to do that for us. And of course, that being the lion's share of their business, they had to 
do what the OEM was saying, even if they thought it wasn't the wisest decision in the long term. So they were stuck trying to balance their own destiny that they wanted to achieve because they could see perhaps that some of those components might not have the future that the OEM thought. So they were kind of on their own path as well as serving the OEM. I'm trying to avoid the names. If I said the names, it would be much easier to follow. But is that still the case where the OEMs are really dictating to the tier ones what they have to do? Or is it is it softening a little bit? Is it changing? I think it very much depends on the size and often the location of the of the OEMs and the suppliers. There are many, many of the OEMs absolutely believe and often with just some justification they know best and therefore they will tell the supplier what to do. You also get connections between the businesses. So, for example, many of the Japanese OEMs partly own and invest heavily in the Japanese tier one levels. So there you have a different relationship. If you look at the German OEMs as an example, often they have done a huge amount of research and they make their decision based on what they want. If you look at the American OEMs and the smaller European OEMs, often there's a bit more flexibility and they will look at what the suppliers are offering and then try and find a way of aligning their demand with the uh, what the supplier has to offer but it is a it is a big inefficiency in the industry in the lens of that if you were let's say a tier 1 and you're trying to to make your products is there any particular advice you would you would give to a tier 1 automotive supplier for you know how they should position themselves how how they might compete better anything that that jumps to mind i think particularly with new technologies often the oems have got a lot of competing ideas internally so it's always very attractive to go to the big OEMs because that's where the biggest contracts can be had. But actually starting with smaller businesses and accumulating real world vehicle knowledge is often a quite a persuasive way of getting the, the bigger OEMs to take more notice of what you're doing. It also, also, the other aspect of it that then becomes important is time to market. If you've got something that you've been able to prove out with a smaller manufacturer and you can say to a big OEM, look, we could have this in production in two years versus doing a development program, which is going to get you there in four years, you can often get traction that way with them. Again, with my work uh, with an American OEM years ago, the, the biggest thing was the vehicle planning, the model year, right? We're going to introduce the next model year, the one after that. What were the features? What did that model look like? Is it still done that way? By and large, yes. And it's done for, for a whole host of reasons. Um, you know, clearly, the, the manufacturers, they're working with a portfolio. They've got turnover in, in their production facilities that has to be managed, a whole set of infrastru infrastructural uh, limitations, things like prototype builds and things like that. 
And they've also got a very constrained legislative framework that they're trying to get through. So they have to have a planning system for doing it. One of the things, of course, that's changed most recently is that cars that are already in production now can form part of that planning process. And what I mean by that is that a lot of features now are made so that they can be upgraded in existing cars, particularly with uh, software features where uh, many manufacturers now can do software over the air upgrades. So, so that planning process now not only takes into account the vehicles going forward, it often takes into account vehicles that are already in the field. And that, in the end, does help with that planning process because it stabilizes the hardware more because they want to impact more vehicles. And I would think as a result, the relationship between the OEM, the, the, the companies providing the cars, the vehicles, and the consumers is changing from uh, buy the car and, and, and I'm, I'm no longer have a relationship with you to maybe I have a long-term relationship. Is that, is that fair? Well, that's something that all OEMs are, are trying to achieve is to build that relationship out. They, they want to try and maintain a connection with the customer and of course, as the cars get progressively longer service intervals, they get more reliable. The connection to the dealership is, is sort of much more remote. So being able to offer features that in the end people would like to charge for is a way of building that relationship as they go forward. And if you look at Tesla, as a, and you know, again, they're a great example of they have a whole community now of customers that have an expectation that they will get upgrades periodically from the, from the business. And, and I, you know, this, this Tesla is disruptive in so many ways to the industry. I, I, but, but that, that's, that's another example, isn't it, of their ability to build those communities and tap into the, the social uh, networking world. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Uh, do you see differences globally in the way that automotive companies are are connecting to their customers and the way that they're going to form those long-term relationships? Are there cultural differences that the automotive companies are dealing with? Probably the biggest cultural difference that I've I've sort of been involved with was when we were developing our business in China. The the amount of care that the dealerships took of their customers in China relative to what we had seen in other parts of the world was, was tremendous to the point where the dealerships were almost hypersensitive about any issues that came out with the cars and often were looking to deal with things that they were seeing that the customer wasn't seeing because they simply didn't ever want the customer to experience a, a problem. Now, now, clearly, car companies don't want people to experience problems with their cars ever, but the sensitivity with the Chinese customers and the, the dealer relationship was, was tremendous. 
Isn't that fascinating? I, I had no idea of something like that. Ron, we're all talking about the microprocessor shortage. It's the it's the issue of the day, but I think the it's just one of many issues that that from supply chain that uh, automotive industry is dealing with. If you were a product planner or a product owner today, and you're, you're looking at the pace of of these types of things, you had COVID nineteen, of Suez Canal, we have microprocessor shortages. How would you advise people? Uh, change the way that they do their uh, product planning to cope for these kind of disruptions? Well, I think I think one of the things that many people are now looking at is the robustness of the, the supply chains. All car manufacturers today have become heavily dependent on uh, supply chains that stretch around the world and often are concentrated into very small numbers of suppliers. And what what you're beginning to see now is people both regionalizing some of the key components again and trying to build so that they've got more alternatives on their on on their option base so that not everybody's dedicated to as you, you know as you, the example you used uh, one renaissance chip so there's work going on in that way but i also think Perhaps the thing that people will look through in the if you if you look beyond the shortages that are there today, the thing that will become really important over the next ten years is getting to uh, the, the discussion on zero carbon will move from a tailpipe discussion to a whole life uh, vehicle discussion, and that again will bring about changes in the in the supply structure, uh, you know, the idea of shipping parts to three or four places in the world to finish them off, where you source raw materials from, ethical impacts of some of the raw material mining are all going to become big considerations and they get magnified with electrified vehicles. And I think that's an area where over the next 10 years, we'll see dramatic changes in the way people think about that activity. That'll be interesting to see. You know, we live, those of us who lived through the 70s and the various oil embargoes and, you know, how, how, how much control went to the oil producing countries. It was, it was, it was amazing. They came from nowhere to tremendous influence, control, profitability. And if I hear what you're saying, that that could, that could easily shift in the future. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that you'll see is that's one of the areas where the OEMs are investing in the whole supply chain so they can understand the, the, the sort of the carbon impact, but also so that they can secure their supply. So, I mean, the most obvious one is battery raw materials. If the rate of change in the number of electric vehicles continues as it is now, five years from now, there's a good probability that we'll have raw material shortages. And so you see the OEMs now starting to invest in that whole supply chain in order to make sure that they have a, a secure supply. 
That's just that's just incredible. Things we don't we don't normally think about. Things that other industries uh, don't face. Who are doing innovation? These are all areas of of innovation, of different types of innovation. It's not just the vehicle. It's so much more in automotive, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, you're you're right, Paul. It's you you the auto industries have to move into different pieces of industry. They don't necessarily have the skills. They need to find those skills in order to try to become expert. And they're also having to develop new relationships um, in order to uh, make sure that they are robust. You know, one of the things we didn't, we didn't talk about, Ron, but I, I really feel compelled to, to ask is the whole aspect, and not, not necessarily your opinion on it, but, but how it's affecting uh, the automotive industry is the self-driving capability either for consumers or trucking or long haul. Any, any perspectives on that you, you could share with us? It's a fascinating technical area. There are some obvious sort of areas where there are practical uses. Things such as long-range trucking are areas where you can see that there's a clear benefit in doing it. I think at an automotive level, it's less clear what the customers are really getting. If you look at, you know, there are already systems for doing, um, you know, most vehicles now have intelligent cruise control where they manage the car's relationship to other cars around it. Uh, there are systems for staying inside the lanes, but fully autonomous vehicles, it isn't really that clear how much customer demand there, there is for it. And I think what we'll see is it will be incremental feature improvements that will bring that through uh, over time. So I'm you know, still a little bit on the fence with autonomous driving. I'm not entirely convinced it has as much consumer demand as you might think. And of course, the, there are you know, effectively, a lot of people can, can sit in an autonomous vehicle today. Every time you buy a taxi taxi ride, it's... <laughs> it's and, a good deal. You know, so there's a lot of people there who earn their living doing the autonomous bit for you. <laughs> I love it. That's a, that's a great answer. Yeah, they, it does feel like a hype cycle. It's one of those um, very much at the top of the hype cycle right now, and it will go through... What, uh, what the Gartner Group calls the trough of disillusionment, right? Uh, it seems to me like that's a big, a big thing that's, uh, that's going to hit us. Uh. Well, you, you, can, you can see how hard it is to, to do it. You, you know, I mean, whether it's Tesla, Waymo, uh, you know, I, companies like Volkswagen were driving autonomous cars around 15 years ago. It's clearly possible to physically make a car drive around autonomously, how you do it with the levels of safety and security that will be needed, it's a lot harder than it looks. And I still think we're quite a long way there. And when you combine that with an uncertainty about the way customers may feel about it, you know, I think it's, it'll clearly find some, some places, but I'm, I'm not convinced it's going to be as widespread as quickly as people might like. 
That's the wonder of, of technology and innovation. You know, I was going to ask, before we started, I wrote down questions I would ask you. And one of them is, what are you working on right now that's exciting? But but boy, I think you just told us. <laughs> There's a lot of excitement in uh, in there. But are there particular areas that you're, you're, you're personally uh, very excited about to continue working on? Well, I, I'm working on a number of technical projects. I probably can't say anything about, but one of the reasons I, when I, when I stepped down, I, I wanted to work on a few things that had been challenges all right throughout my career. And one of those was uh, skills, particularly technical skills. So I chair the West Midlands Automotive Skills Task Force. The West Midlands in the UK is really the heart of the auto industry. And it's got thousands of jobs that are linked to the auto industry. And so it's really important that, um, you know, we've got the right skills for the next 20 years. And that's both in terms of retraining people who are already in the industry and also making sure that people uh, who aspire to come into the industry can uh, come in with the right skills. So we, we did quite a lot of work on uh, identifying emerging skills and checking that regionally we've got the right training to support that. Uh, so there's, and there's sort of specialist skills like electrification or autonomous driving, the, the uh, cyber security. But the other thing that we've sort of put a lot of effort into is the digital, digital engineering. If you look at car companies today, uh, they're still run on quite often quite traditional lines, but within the next five years, they will have become completely digital businesses. So the level of digital skills you need coming into the industry is, uh, is much higher than it was five years ago. Well, Ron, I, I wish you all the success in that endeavor because that's a very humanitarian, it's, it's very much touching the people aspect of, of, of everything. And that's, that's just so important. So I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, people like you are, are doing that kind of thing. And I really want to thank you, Ron. This has been a, a wonderful discussion. Uh, clearly, I don't think there's any question I could ask you that you couldn't answer. Uh, you did. It's just, you know, you're, you're so active in so many ways. If people want to reach out and connect with you or kind of follow you or somehow get aligned with you, how can they find you? I'm on LinkedIn. That's, that's probably the easiest place to find me. And I know that uh, you've you've written a few great great pieces uh, for 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 our company, Sophion. Uh, so so we can also find some of the things that you've co-authored there as well. And again, Ron, thanks very much. Really enjoyed the conversation. I think all of our our listeners uh, have as well. well. It was a pleasure, Paul. Take care. Yeah, you have a great day, Ron. Take care. Bye bye. And thanks to all of you listeners who joined us today. We're grateful that you participate in this with us. We're always open to hearing your suggestions, comments, thoughts, recommendations. So you can please drop us a line if there's something that, uh, that you have to tell us or want to tell us. And until next time, everybody have a great day. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. 
For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.